This week's episode of the Rural Woman Podcast is brought to you by the patrons of the Rural Woman Podcast. This amazing group of individuals contribute financially to the Rural Woman Podcast to ensure the stories of women in agriculture hit your earbuds each and every week. Want to join them in supporting the stories of women in agriculture while getting access to extended episodes, patron-only episodes, and other great perks? Head on over to wildrosefarmer.com to learn more about how you can become a patron through Patreon. Welcome to the Rural Woman Podcast, a platform for women in agriculture, ranching, homesteading, and more to share their stories. I'm your host, Caitlin Dubin. Hey everyone, welcome to this week's episode of the Rural Woman Podcast. Today, you'll meet Deborah Neiman. Deborah is a homesteader and a self-sufficiency expert. In 2002, she relocated her family from the suburbs of Chicago to a 32-acre parcel on a creek in the middle of nowhere. Together, they built their own home and began growing most of their own food. Sheep, pigs, goats, chickens, ducks, and turkeys supply the meat, eggs, and dairy products, while an organic garden and orchard provide most of the fruits and vegetables. Deborah is a highly sought-after speaker and workshop leader, presenting throughout the U.S. and Canada on topics including soap making, cheese making, raising livestock, gardening, and health. Deborah is also the author of six books, including Homegrown and Handmade, Raising Goats Naturally, and Goats Giving Birth. I am very excited for you to get to hear my conversation with Deborah. She is a wealth of knowledge when it comes to homesteading and self-sufficiency, and I learned so much from our conversation and our time together. Before we get to Deborah's interview, I want to share with you this week's listener review. This week's review comes from K77321 via Apple Podcast. This five-star rating and review is titled, Man Who Loves Rural Women Podcast. I know this podcast is directed towards rural women, but I think there is a lot of value for us men to take away from it as well. Caitlin does a wonderful job of hitting on topics from all across the rural life spectrum. She brings such a unique perspective to life on the farm. Keep it up. Well, thank you so much for your kind rating and review over on Apple Podcasts. And my friend, if you have an Apple product and have not left a rating and review yet, I would encourage you to do so. This helps others get exposed to all of the goodness here on the Rural Woman Podcast. And if you are listening to the Rural Woman Podcast over on Spotify, I'd like to encourage you to head over to your search bar and type in Positively Farming Media. Myself and the other members of the Positively Farming Media Mastermind have created a playlist on Spotify for you to listen to all of the amazing shows on our network. Just a few of the shows to mention that are a part of the Positively Farming Media Network, the Joy Farmer podcast with Bev Ross, the Kinda Hippie, Kinda Hood podcast with my friend Siri Larice and one of my new favorites, Just Grow Something with Karen Valdez. Again, you can find all of these great podcasts and more by heading to Spotify and searching for the playlist, Positively Farming Media. Without further ado, my friends, let's get to this week's episode with Deborah. 
Deborah, welcome to the Rural Woman Podcast. I am so excited to have you on the show and share your story with my audience about being an incredible rural woman. Oh, thank you. It's a lot of fun. I'm so excited to be here. Tell us a bit more about yourself and how you got your start in agriculture. Well, it's kind of funny because I actually grew up in a small town and couldn't wait to go to the big city of Houston on the weekends and hated small towns, heard my mother say nothing but negative stuff about farm life because my grandparents had a farm and both of my parents had grown up on a farm and lived on a farm till I was three. So I was definitely not a person that you would have ever thought that you would find on a farm. But for whatever reason, I, I kind of think maybe it was those visits to my grandparents' farm as a small child that just really drew me in. I just thought it was so cool. Like I helped my grandmother make butter one time. And that just gave me the idea that like nothing just magically appears on the grocery store shelves. Like it all comes from somewhere, you know? And so even when I lived in cities and stuff, I would like, I started making my own strawberry jam and I started making peanut butter (laughs) when I saw somebody selling peanuts on the side of the road one day when my husband was in the Navy, we lived in Florida. So we just, I started doing that. And then at some point my husband and I said, why don't we move to the country and start growing our own food? (laughs) You go from the side of the road peanuts to... leaving city and going straight to the country. I love that. So tell me more about your grandparents' farm. Did they have livestock on the farm? Was it a grain farm? What were they growing? So it was pretty typical. It was 11 acres and it was in central Texas and they had chickens and turkeys. And that's what I thought that like, that's where I thought animals live, you know, like I, when I was a teenager and even in my early twenties, when I saw chicken in the store, I saw eggs in the store. I thought they were coming from a farm like my grandparents where the chickens were just running around free outside and the turkeys were running around free and the cows were, were out in the sunshine. And when I was in my mid twenties is when I found out that that is not where my food was coming from. I was horrified, like, cause I was an animal lover And when I discovered that the chickens were like in buildings their entire life, I was immediately like, oh my gosh, I don't want to participate in that system. And so we actually became vegetarians and we were vegetarians for 14 years before we moved out to the country. And we were not going to eat meat. We just got the chickens for eggs. We got the goats for milk. So we were going to continue as vegetarians But if anybody's ever just let nature take its course, (laughs) you discover that like 50% of all the babies born are going to be males. And, you know, like with the chickens, it it doesn't matter if they've got 30 acres to run around, they're going to start to fight for the girls. And so then you see, you have to make some hard decisions. And we ultimately decided that all the reasons that we had become vegetarians did not exist on our farm. Like all of our animals were happy. They were healthy. They were eating worms and crickets and whatever was bouncing around the pasture and getting plenty of sunshine and had, you know, really happy lives. So we ultimately decided to start eating meat. Right. It's so interesting to me that, you know, how we're raised as kids and our understanding of the food system and where food comes from. I myself grew up in, I would say a mid-sized city, but 
we're surrounded by the census. I think it was taken last year, two years ago. There's 900 farms in the vicinity of where my small town is. And I didn't know a farmer and I didn't know where my food came from because I wasn't directly exposed to it. While you yourself were exposed on a smaller scale of seeing how food was raised and thinking, well, that's that's how food is raised at versus me, where I just thought food, you know, you went to the grocery store and you got food and, you know, growing small scale in your backyard versus, you know, the thousands and thousands of acres it takes to raise food, to feed the world and all of these things of what we're exposed to and how that kind of forms and molds to what our values are growing up. It's always interesting to learn where our food comes from and how we view that. So thank you for sharing that story with us. And it's funny, I've I've spoken to women before on the podcast who formerly were vegans or vegetarians or whatever, based on those values and what they've seen. But then when they get, you know, further into their journey of seeing how food can actually be raised in a way that, you know, resonates with you and how it works for you and your family, you know, eventually bringing meat back into their diet. So take us back to the decision that you and your husband made to move from the city to the country. What was that like making that? And how did that journey happen for you? Well, we started talking about it about nine years before we actually did it. And we just kept saying, you know, we should move to the country so we can grow our own food organically. But Whenever um, like my husband would get a job transfer or something and we'd move, we would look for a place in that country, but we could never find what we wanted. It would it was always like, you know, two acres cut out of a cornfield, you know, with maybe two or three trees in the yard. And it just, you know, or the house was too small if the land was right. It was not working. And then I went to the Garfield Farm Rare Breed Show. I was a reporter in the Chicago suburbs. And I went to this rare breed livestock show at a farm museum. And I saw all these chickens that I remembered seeing on my grandparents' farm. And the people who had them said that they were in danger of extinction because they didn't fit into the commercial model. And so they were really only being raised by small farmers and backyard hobbyists at this point because the commercial chicken industry basically had two hybrid breeds of chickens. They've got one breed of chicken over here that they have perfected to be like the absolute best egg layer. And then on the other end, they've got this other chicken breed hybrid that they have perfected to gain weight faster than any other breed out there. Whereas, you know, like the chickens on my grandparents' farm, they were decent egg layers and they gave you a good chicken dinner too, but they weren't going to reach that chicken dinner size by six to eight weeks. They were going to reach it by like four or four, four and a half months. And they weren't going to lay 300 eggs a year. You know, they were going to lay maybe 180 to 220 eggs a year. And so I was just shocked that like, oh my gosh, like my children might not be able to see chickens like this, you know? And so it was, it's funny. Like I still go, I, I went home that day and I, it was like, all of a sudden I had a mission. It's like, okay, we have to move to the country now so we can start raising rare breeds of animals because they're going to go extinct. Cause I always thought that like, oh, like this, you know, white tiger is on the, is in danger of extinction or some wildlife, you know, and there's nothing I can do about that. Like, that's really sad, but all of a sudden, like, not only was it within my reach to make a difference, but 
it fit in perfectly with what we had been talking about already. And so that's when we started to get serious and we started looking more. And then within a couple of years, we found a place and we did it. <laughs> I love that. You're my kind of woman, Deborah. You get the idea in your mind that, you know, you are going to make a difference and this is your idea and this is how you can do it. This is how we're talking on this podcast right now because I had the exact same envisionment on a tractor one day. So, <laughs> so locationally, you were near Chicago and then where where have you moved since then? So we drew a big one hour circle around where my husband had a job. He at that point had tenure as a professor at Joliet Junior College. So we drew this big circle and, you know, it's like right on the edge of the suburbs. And so if you go north or east, you're talking like it's expensive. You know, we like all we could get in those places was again, like like maybe two acres or maybe even an acre in a glorified, you know, suburb that's outside of city limits. And so we wound up going down I-55, almost a full hour, and we found 32 acres on a creek, on a gravel road with a pond and lots of trees. Like it was everything that we had wanted. And all of a sudden, like there it was. So we bought it. Well, it was worth the wait then for all of those years of waiting and looking. So when you started your journey into homesteading, Take us back to what were some of your biggest fears at that time? I was so naively optimistic. (laughs) Everybody, all my friends in the city and suburbs were saying, what do you, did you grow up on a farm? And I was like, no. And they're like, well, what if you make a mistake? And I'm like, oh, it's not that hard. And I, I really thought that like, oh, people have been doing this since the beginning of time. You know, it's not that hard. And so I wish I could say I was, I did have some fears. Little fear is a good thing. But in the very beginning, I just thought, well, people have been doing this forever. It can't be that hard. Right. Because I didn't, I really did not understand. Like, I didn't understand what organic agriculture is, you know? I thought, oh, you just plant stuff in the ground and it's going to grow and it'll be good. And your animals will, you know, be fine. And they're not, you know... It didn't work like that at all. (laughs) No. (laughs) Again, the naive optimism. I also experienced this and having this vision of, you know, walking into this lush farm that your vegetables and your produce is growing and your animals are frolicking and healthy. And, you know, I think that's the vision that we've been fed as non-rural people thinking again, like this is easy. People have been doing this for however many years. And you would think because we live in the world of today, we would have the technologies to make it easier. And in some ways we do. But I even think back to my husband's grandmother who, you know, had all of these acres to grow vegetables and livestock to feed her family directly because she wasn't getting her food from anywhere else. It was coming from this farm. And I think now, you know, if I can't decide what I want for dinner, I can drive to town that's 20 minutes away and go through a drive-through if necessary, whereas Baba couldn't do that. So it's really wild to explain to people who might not understand this lifestyle that, you know, yeah, it is hard. It is doable. It's possible. 
because of all of these technologies and things that we have in the stories that have been told before us to make this happen. But I think unless you are on the land making those decisions at the time of, you know, you'll never fully get it. And I, I myself, I'm still learning every single day. <laughs> yeah, I think that's one of the things I actually really love about this. And that's what I loved about being a newspaper reporter was that every day was different because I could not, I would not be happy in a job where I just did exactly the same thing day after day after day. And I remind myself of this sometimes, you know, on some of those days that just get particularly challenging <laughs> and the, like just everything has been just tossed up in the air and you are in, you know, fire control mode, damage control mode all day long. And it's like, but hey, it's not boring. <laughs> you <Right>. know. <laughs> Yeah, we never stop. It's never the same thing every day. It's always something new. So again, take us back to when you first started and you were, you know, naively optimistic about all of these things that were going to work out for you. What are some of the big ones that you can remember that didn't work out for you? One of the most ridiculous things that happened was that I could not understand why my tomatoes were not ripening. I was going to have this wonderful free range farm where all the animals could, you know, roam around and stuff. And we had had a garden in the suburbs. And like, if there was one thing I could grow, it was tomatoes. And so I'd be out in the garden and like, oh my gosh, look at all these green tomatoes. We're going to have tomatoes soon. And that's what it was like day after day after day. There were never any red ones. And then finally, one day, I saw chickens eating the tomatoes. <laughs> and they found so all I, the red ones for you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then it clicked. Oh, okay. Um, you know what? My grandparents had a fence around the garden. <laughs> and I also discovered why, like my grandparents, like I said, they had this 11 acre farm. They also had a little fence around their house, which is where my grandmother had all of her flowers. Because that's the other thing I learned is that chickens love hostas and all kinds of things. And oh my goodness, like if you plant fall bulbs, they think you just created a dust bath for them. You know, you go back an hour later and like all of your bulbs, which were previously six inches under, are now scattered all over the yard with this ginormous hole in the ground. And so I I had so much to learn about about that. And, and with the roosters, I thought one of the books I read said that you only need one rooster for every eight or 10 hens. And so that was what I ordered from the hatchery. But I thought, well, we're going to just keep all of the chicks that hatch because roosters are so beautiful. And I think beauty is very important. It has a place in the world. And so they are going to just be here to make our farm beautiful. And then, you know, when you've got when your hen to rooster ratio is almost two to one, it gets ugly in multiple ways. Like your hens are literally run ragged. They have no feathers left on their backs. Their backs are just bare skin from roosters jumping on them over and over again. Like one rooster would jump on one and three or four more would line up. So like she wouldn't even have a chance to get away. Like the second he jumps off, another rooster jumps on. And then a couple of the roosters would start fighting over the hen. <laughs> 
And then they started killing each other. And that was when we had to sit down and have a hard discussion as naive vegetarians from the city. Like, okay, is it humane to just let them kill each other? Like, that's natural, right? Like, is natural really what we want to do in this situation? Or should we go through and thin the herd, you know, thin the flock a little. And it was amazing. Like I, after we did it, like I felt so guilty that we hadn't done it sooner because then I would look out the window and I would see my hens out there just peacefully pecking in the grass to get a bug or a blade of grass. And they weren't being chased all the time. And, and I just felt like such a bad you know, chicken mama, like, oh my gosh, I'm so sorry. I did not get rid of those obnoxious roosters sooner. Right. Well, you know, that's all part of the learning experience, right? And I myself have not birthed a child, but mother's guilt, I think even with livestock and your animals can be a thing. So I definitely know I've experienced this, but you know, through my farming journey myself and through a lot of other journeys in life. I feel like when you know better, you do better. And obviously you've done that. You've made it to this point here where we are today and (laughs) people are alive and well, and so are your animals and all of the things. But one thing that you brought up there that I want to kind of, you know, go deeper into is, you know, talking about what we view as natural or what we think as humans is like our natural ecosystem or all of these things. And I kind of bring that back to what are the buzzwords and buzzwords in our society. Now we talk about natural or organic or sustainable and all of these things as a homesteader, being sustainable is super important for you and your operation. What does it mean to be sustainable? What I really want to do is I want to try to mimic nature as much as possible. And like a lot of people, when we moved out here, I thought that organic meant that I was going to replace something made in a lab with something made in nature. You know, that instead of giving my goats a chemical medication that I was going to you know, give them herbs or something like that. But I think a lot of us, one of the things I've really had to learn is that most of us have this idea that like illness is is natural like a constant you know like we always have to be on the lookout for illness and we really don't you know like a lot of people think that they have to give their chickens or their goats herbs every day or every week to keep them healthy and you really don't there's nobody handing out the wormwood in nature to animals to keep them from getting parasites. They in nature, well, first of all, goats, like we've done a horrible thing to goats. (laughs) We took these desert animals who are browsers and we brought them to this rainy climate covered with grass and expect them to be grazers. And they've never done that throughout history until like, you know, the last 50 years or so when they've gotten more popular here, like, Like, this is why you don't hear about goats like 150 years ago. You hear about cows and sheep, but I don't think they could keep goats alive very long 150 years ago in most places. Like, yeah, in in Arizona, New Mexico, places that are really dry and arid, like a desert, it would work. But 
like in Illinois, I, that was like the biggest problem I had initially was that I had problems with my goats with nutritional deficiencies and with worms. And I tried it all. <laughs> like I was one of the early people who got to experience dewormer resistance firsthand because we had it. And dewormer resistance is not something that happens to a goat. It's something that happens to all the worms on your farm because they've been exposed to dewormers too much. And it's because, you know, back in 2002 to 2010, people weren't talking about famacha and rotational grazing and management. And that's really what we have to do. It's not about picking the right herb or because I tried all of them and none of them worked. Like I just sat there and watched goats die as I tried one remedy after another, after another, because nothing worked. It's about the management. And then for a lot of it, it's a huge part of it is the genetics. You know, I say like now I have maybe one or two goats. I have about 25 adult goats. I have one or two that might need to be dewormed after kidding. And that's usually it. It's all about management and nutrition. And if they have really solid nutrition, they're getting all the minerals they need which is not as easy as it sounds. You can't just go buy whatever off the shelf. I have a mineral comparison chart on my website that shows you like what is in minerals is vastly different from one to another. And some of them are just really inadequate. And they need that because there's a lot more minerals in brows than there is in grass. And most of us don't have the brows. Like I'm in Illinois. I have no brows. <laughs> like Starting about now, the browse is going away and we're not going to see any more until the middle of April because all of our trees, we have mostly deciduous trees. All the leaves are going to be gone. And so there's a lot more minerals in weeds and leaves and bushes and bark and all that stuff than there is in grass. And so that's why you can't, you know, goats are not just little cows or they're not sheep without wool. They're very different. And I, you know, I've said before, like, man, if I knew everything in 2002 that I know now about goats, I'm not so sure I'd want them. <laughs> like, cause it just, I mean, I just felt like I got dragged through the mud emotionally for about the first six or seven years I had goats. But anybody who has had them knows that they just absolutely steal your heart. And I just could not give up on them, you know, and my newspaper reporter background came in really handy. And my researcher background came in really handy because when I had problems like this and the, you know, average vets did not know how to help, I didn't think anything of like diving into the scientific literature and looking for research on the problems I was having. And then even taking it a step further and contacting the researchers who had done those studies to ask them very specific questions so that I could make sure that I was applying this appropriately to my herd. That's the good answer. <laughs> Deborah. it honestly, like the things that you're saying right now are hitting me right in the heart and in the feelers because I have felt very similar, you know, hangups and pains when it comes to learning and researching about goats because you know, as a person who knew absolutely nothing about them besides they were adorable in petting zoos. So why shouldn't I have some on the farm? Like learning, 
you know, what it takes to keep them as healthy as you can. Or, you know, we talk about overall health and, you know, if they, they're okay, but they can be better, why wouldn't we want to make our herds better for, you know, long-term longevity and whatever your goal is on your farm, whether that's milking them or using them for meat or whatever it is. So you've obviously done so much research and are sharing your knowledge with your online audience. Take us back to when you started sharing what you knew and why did you start sharing what you knew? Well, it started with a lot of those friends back in the suburbs who were telling their friends, I've got this friend who moved out to the country and she's making her own cheese and she's making soap and she's raising goats. And so I started getting these random phone calls from people saying, hey, I heard you know how to make cheese. Would you teach me? Or soap or whatever. Or or even like, I heard you have a farm. Can I come out and see your goats and chickens and stuff? And in the beginning, I was always saying yes. And so people were coming out and I was spending a lot of time. Like, you know, I would spend two or three hours teaching somebody how to make soap or cheese or walking around the farm and showing them all the animals and talking about housing and fencing and rotational grazing and all the stuff we learned. And then I started thinking, you know, I should start doing classes. Like this is taking a lot of time. And so I did, I started scheduling classes and they very quickly, like I mean, my kitchen's not that big. So, you know, like for the cheese and soap, I I'd had to limit it to eight people. And very quickly, those courses would fill up. And I would do like one a month in the spring and summer sometimes. And then I started getting phone calls from people saying, would you speak at this conference or would you do a workshop here? And then when I got invited to the first Mother Earth News Conference in 2010, that is when things really exploded. That was when I was discovered by my publisher who who said, we've been reading your blog and we were wondering, have you ever thought about writing a book? And it's funny to, it all grew very organically. Like it just happened because I like to help people. I guess I'm a teacher at heart and I kind of feel like nobody should have to make all the same mistakes I did, especially when some of them were so gut-wrenching. Like I don't want somebody else to have to go through that unnecessarily. Yeah, for sure. Well, and going back to, you know, my motto, when you know better, you do better. So you knew this information and you knew how hard it was to get it. So let's help other people so they don't have to make the same gut-wrenching mistakes that, you know, we've we've had to make. And I think, you know, as first generation people in agriculture, I think some of those mistakes are necessary in order for you to grow and learn. But at the same time, it's just like, if you can, you know, not keep doing the same mistake every single time, that would be good too. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Say if you are selling a product or a service off of your farm, you need to take this course. (laughs) This is probably the best investment that they can make in themselves and their business. For, For how much information is packed in, and the amount of time and the fact that you have access to it, you can go back to it. And you wanted to learn this from someone, but I wanted to learn it from the right person. And Kelsey understands the nuances of farming and what that kind of business is. Hi guys, my name is Kelsey Jorson Olson. I am the farmer and marketer behind the Cultivating Capital course. My husband and I run Greenwell Homestead, an 80-acre farm in Northwest Wisconsin where we grow various produce, raise pastured hens and goats, and create shippable value-added products, and have made our farm profitable through online marketing. 
I developed and created this course to help other farmers, homesteaders, and home business owners learn how to use online marketing to grow their business's customer base. Having these resources at your fingertips has just been a game changer for me. The value that is offered is priceless. And the commitment that Kelsey has to her students through this course isn't like any other online course that I've taken. I was nervous to, to invest in myself and to pay for the course. And part of that was that I'm a farmer. I think I have to do things myself because I already do them myself. Like I build my own coops, like I'm tough, but learning from someone else who has done it was so valuable. To learn more about the Cultivating Capital course and get enrolled for 2022, head to the link in the show notes. All right, back to the show. So talk to us more about your books and being discovered by your publisher. What have you published? And tell us all more about your books. Well, the first book was called Homegrown and Handmade, and it's now in its second edition. And when the publisher first told me that, I thought, oh, yeah, I started a memoir. And they're like, no, we weren't really thinking memoir. They're very hard to sell if you're not famous already. We were thinking, you know, like you could write a book teaching people about the things you do, which really shocked me because I did not think I was an expert at all. But after, you know, having a meeting with the acquisitions editor and talking through it, you know, she's like, I really think you, you know, more than you think you do. (laughs) And so I went home from the conference and I started thinking about it and taking notes. And I was like, Well, yeah, like all of these books I read had some major gaping holes in them, okay? Because the problem I saw back then is that all of those books were written by people who had grown up on a farm, they'd live on a farm their whole life, and so they had no idea what people really needed to know and what kind of mistakes were going to be common. And so one of the things that I put in like that very first book were sidebars throughout the whole thing. I wish I'd known. (laughs) And these were like all the things that got left out of the books I read because they were written by somebody who'd just been doing it forever. And, you know, like, oh, you only need eight or 10 roosters. And they don't tell you if you have more, they're going to run your hens ragged and kill each other. You know, I mean, I just was left to assume like, oh, you don't want to feed a rooster because it's, you know, not contributing anything, which I didn't think was very fair. And (laughs) so, you know, like my rooster story is one of the things in those sidebars that says, I wish I'd known. And then, you know, like about the goats, like I, I wish I'd known that like you really can't raise them naturally in most parts of the United States because this is not their natural environment. One of the problems we have too, is that our well water comes up from a hundred feet below the surface which goats couldn't drink that, you know, like in nature, they're going to drink what is basically amounts to rainwater and, you know, melted snow and stuff, which is nice and soft water. It's not filled with minerals. The stuff that comes up out of our well is full of sulfur and iron and causes mineral deficiencies because they're antagonists to like copper and selenium. So there were just so many things that I didn't know. And I, I felt like, yeah, I, I am going to write this book and not only am I going to explain how to do this stuff from an absolute beginner standpoint, but I'm going to explain why, because I'm one of those people, if you don't tell me why I go and do it. And then I find out, 
Oh, yeah. Okay. That's why you were supposed to do it that way because it's not good. It doesn't work well if you do it a different way. But every now and then I discover, like, yeah, there was no reason for that instruction. Like, that's just silly. So, like, one of the things with soap making is, you know, like some people say you have to have your lye mixture and your oils have to be the same temperature. And like, they don't. Like, I have no idea how that got to be a thing, but. I've done them like all over the place, you know, different, like one higher, the other lower and vice versa. And it didn't make a difference. So that was the first book. And then I actually had an idea for another book called Eco Thrifty that I did. I had like started writing it before I even met my publisher. And that was because people were always telling me, oh, I wish I could have a lifestyle like yours, but it's, it's too expensive. I can't afford it. And my idea was, I'm not telling you to go buy frozen organic TV dinners. Like, yeah, those are too expensive. I'm telling you to grow your own tomatoes so you can can your own pizza sauce and milk your own goats so you can make your own mozzarella. And, you know, the only thing on that pizza that did not, that wasn't grown within 100 yards of your kitchen is the flour and the salt and the yeast. And so that's how, like, a lot of my recipes come from that angle it's I tell people I'm like because people ask like what's your blog like and I'm like kind of like a recipe blog on steroids like I'm not just telling you get a can of tomato sauce I'm telling you how to grow start with growing the tomatoes and I saw an interview with some food guy in the New York Times several years ago who said talked about how the definition of cooking dinner or fixing dinner has changed through the years like to our great great grandmothers fixing dinner meant butchering a chicken dressing the chicken and you know now it just you know it, it could mean opening the freezer and pulling out some breaded chicken sticks and it just which made me laugh because I'm like oh yeah we still go by that first uh, definition of cooking dinner right <laughs> and that then is, I got that's into the so goat true. books yeah. yes and I want to talk a lot about your goat books because your most recent goat book definitely has my attention. So what was the first book that you wrote specifically on goats? First book was called Raising Goats Naturally. And I actually wanted to call it Homestead Goats because I was afraid I was going to get pushed back by using the word natural. And my publisher is the one who's like, but you're telling people how to do it naturally. You're telling them, don't give them routine drugs. And you're telling them to rotationally graze and mimic nature and all that kind of stuff. And so they're paying the bills. (laughs) They're paying me. So we go in with their title. So it's about, yeah, everything I just said, you know, like raising goats without like the routine deworming and stuff, which was very common when I got started. And in hearing people, like so many people have like this huge medicine chest. Like I just want to scream when I look on some of these blogs and they list like 25 things you should have in your goat medicine chest. And I'm like, you know, if you seriously are using all those things, you are either overdiagnosing your goats, you're managing them very poorly or you got some really bad genetics and they just all need to go into the freezer and you need to start from scratch with some hardier animals. Because I always kind of think about it this way, like, would they have been extinct, like, you know, without so much intense care? Or like, what I'm doing is really mimicking nature. And I feel like goats were like a really great centerpiece for your homestead because like they're going to give you manure for your garden and they can give you milk which you can then use to make cheese and soap they have amazing leather most people don't know that kid gloves is referring to the skin of a baby goat so handling with kid gloves means handling with gloves that are very thin 
and you can you can feel things, you can handle them gently and carefully because kids' skin is very thin. And so you can use the leather, you can do all sorts of fun stuff with goats. You can train them to pull a cart. I had someone years ago that bought four goats for me and did that. And in fact, she actually wrote the article on my uh, website about training goats to drive because she was a teenager when she did it. And it was, it was really fun and inspiring to see how she did that. So the goat book came about because my publisher saw me speaking at another Mother Earth News Fair about raising goats. And she said, uh, for your next book, have you thought about doing goats? <laughs> and I said, I'm so glad you asked. I would love to do a book about goats because I knew that like at that point, I had done so much research just to keep my goats alive that I had learned so much about nutrition and parasites and management and rotational grazing. And I loved the idea of being able to share that. In fact, I signed a contract for an 80,000 word book, which seemed like it'd be fine. And I wrote 80,000 words, stuck to it, sent it off to the editor. And then she sent it back with all these questions. And I just went to town answering those questions. <laughs> like I was having a ball. I'm like, oh, you want to know more about this? Sure. And the book was like over 90,000 words. And I was still in the middle of like answering all these questions. And I emailed and I'm like, yeah, I just realized the, the book is 90,000 words now. Uh, is that too long? And she wrote back and said, okay, we can work with that, but that's it. Like it cannot be any longer. So I was like, okay. So I really had to hold myself back <laughs> to try and not make it any longer because I had so much more, like I wanted to answer all of those extra questions and give more information. And so that's how I wound up with like, a second edition only five years later because I was continuing to collect more research and stuff. And that one's like another 20,000 words longer. So it's longer. And then it was really funny because I was talking to my editor. We went out to lunch at a Mother Earth News event about three years ago. And she said, so what have you been working on? And I told her about this little thing I was putting together about goats giving birth. And I'm like, but I know that's way too niche for you. For you. you wouldn't want to publish that. And she says, oh, I wouldn't say that. I think that sounds like a great idea. I was like, really? So that's how I wound up writing book number six was I, I totally blame the margarita that I had with dinner because <laughs> I never drink and I had a margarita with dinner. And I'm like, I came home and I was like, you guys are never going to believe this because having a baby and writing a book. There's so many similarities, including the fact that like immediately following each one, you're like, I am never doing this again. Like this was so painful. You know, <laughs> there is no way I am ever doing this again. And then, you know, there was book number six. There you go. <laughs> and yeah. And I came home and my family was like, you didn't. And I'm like, yeah, I did. That's amazing. We can blame it on a margarita. I hope that's somewhere in the book. Like you're getting this book because I had a margarita at dinner. <laughs> yeah. I was like, I can't believe I left that dinner agreeing to write another book. <laughs> right. That's so funny. Well, and something that you said a little bit earlier that I made a note about was, you know, thinking that we're not an expert in what we know. And I think 
you know, specifically as women, we can be super guilty of that thinking that, you know, we're not an expert or somebody else does it better than me or they know better. And, you know, there might be some truth to those things, but that doesn't diminish what you already knew and all of the work that you put into this. So congratulations on like this whole journey of writing six books and teaching courses and speaking at conferences, because you know, that's something that I think needs to be celebrated here of going from looking at a chicken at a conference that you're writing about in Chicago to now writing your own books and teaching other people about this lifestyle and that it's attainable for them to do. So I just want to give you praise right now for one second of how amazing that is. <laughs> Thank you. That actually became one of my taglines was like, if I can do it, you can too. Because I just, I feel like I was so clueless and unprepared when we started and, and it worked out like we're still here. (laughs) Yes. So I selfishly have a question for you and this is only for me, anybody else. I don't know if they're going to get any benefit out of it, but I certainly am. So you talk about writing the sidebars and wishing what you would have known in your latest book, Goats Giving Birth. What is that sidebar? What is something that you wish you would have known before you started breeding goats? Because a backstory, I have been raising goats since... 2018, but I've never bred them. I call myself a goat wrangler versus a goat farmer because I buy them in the spring and then I sell them in the fall, which is not the best financial decision for anyone to do. So I don't recommend you doing that, but they do clean up the brush very nicely around here and they're really fun and I love them, but I've never bred them before. And this year in the spring, I got two bottle babies. Their names are Kitty and Babs and they are the joys of my life and also the biggest pains in the butt I've ever had. But I love them. And I knew as soon as I gave them their first bottle that they were never leaving the farm and that they were going to be my breeding stock to start off with. So what is something that you wish you would have known before you started breeding goats? Oh, this is pretty amazing because I, this is one of those things where, you know, like you just keep learning more and more and more. I wish I would have known that a doe cannot necessarily raise all the kids that she has. And that's really super relevant with Nigerian dwarfs because they are prone to having multiples. (laughs) It is genetic. So if you really don't ever want to have four or five baby goats, which is not all it is cracked up to be, let me tell you, we've, we've now had eight sets of quintuplets and I don't even know how many quads we've had. But the very first set of quads we had, it was during our second kidding season. And I was worried about, it was three bucklings and a doling. And I was worried about this doling because it just didn't seem like she was nursing as much as the boys. And back in that day, back in the day, we were on Yahoo groups. And so I went on my Yahoo groups and I said, you know, this doe has four. Can she really feed them? 100% of people are like, oh, yeah, absolutely. My doe does that all the time, you know, totally. I'm like, okay. When she was two weeks old, I walked out there and found her laying flat out on her side, four legs stuck straight out to the side, just very weakly crying. 
And I grabbed her, ran in the house, called my mentor. And she said, oh, um, you're going to have to tube feed her. It sounds like she's not getting enough milk. And so she talked me through tube feeding, which was horrifying. I'm like sitting in my living room, holding her and crying, please don't die. And thinking like, oh my gosh, I could stick this tube into her lungs and just pour milk into her lungs. Like it was very scary to me. And I pulled her through and she became oh one of those very, very special babies to me. Like you can't go through something that emotional and not get really attached. And so she spent her whole life here. And then a couple of years later, I had another doe that had quads. And again, it just did not look good to me. And I back to the Yahoo groups <laughs> with all the happy people going, oh yeah, totally, no problem. And when that doling was only two days old, I walked out and found her dead. And I know now that it was from starvation. And I finally realized like, okay, these people are just crazy. Like they're just bragging or something. I don't know if they're lying or what, but like they, they cannot feed as many as they have. And so, so I gave up on that idea and I started watching them a little more closely, but then the word this really came, like, I wish I would have known this a lot, like in the beginning, and I wish everyone knows it today. Seven years ago, I was laid up in bed. I had fallen and smashed my knee. My knee was the size of a football. I could not put any weight on it at all. Like when I first went into the ER, they thought I had a broken patella. Like that's how bad it was. So I am stuck up there. Our last daughter had just gone off to college and Goats had totally been the girls thing. Like it was, it was women's work. It was like me and my two daughters. My husband knew nothing. He's an engineer. He's not an animal person. You know, if I said, I need a new fence, got it, honey, you know, put a new door here in this wall in the barn. You got that. You got it, honey. Um, so all of a sudden he was out there birthing goats when he had never done this before. And I was telling him what like my mentor had told me and what is still passed around in Facebook groups today. And that is, oh, just feel the tummy. It's right behind the ribs. Just make sure it feels like a little golf ball behind the ribs and it's good. Because he never saw this window had twins. He never saw them nurse. And I'm like, you can't leave the barn until they've nursed. <laughs> and he's like, I've been trying for two hours. They won't nurse. And like I said, not an animal person. I could tell he was getting frustrated. I'm like, okay. I'm like, try to be brave here. Like, okay. Okay. So apparently they learned how to nurse without his help, which doesn't always happen either, but they did finally figure it out. Thank goodness. And then like any good engineer, he started collecting data. And so he went out there and he started weighing every kid every day and putting it all into an Excel spreadsheet. And he has been doing that now for seven years. Wow. And I immediately, like just looking at those numbers, I immediately started to see like why some kids are healthier than others. It all goes back to their weight, it, which goes back to, are they getting enough milk? And so now we've got, after seven years of collecting data and having all this in a spreadsheet, that's several hundred kids that we have been following. I have very specific marks I want them to hit. Like they're Nigerian dwarfs. I want to see them gain an average of four ounces a day. That means if they only gained three ounces today, I want them to make up for that and gain five ounces tomorrow and vice versa. If they gained five or six ounces yesterday and I'm only seeing 
two or three ounces today. All right, that's fine. But you, as long as you're back up tomorrow, you know, um, and the thing is, this is also really, this is useful for any animals because we started after doing it with the goats for a few years, we started doing it with the sheep, which sheep very hands-off they're grazers. They lamb on pasture. They're like so self-reliant. It's just crazy compared to goats. But we've started to have a little bit more of a hands-on approach with the sheep. And my husband has started weighing those lambs. And this past spring, if he had not been doing that, we would have had a dead lamb because this you experienced you has successfully raised twins in the past. She had a single. So normally you'd be sitting there going, Oh, no problem. She's going to feed like she's in her prime. She's like four or five years old. She's going to, that lamb's going to be so fat. Well, my husband goes out there the day after it's born and it and weighs it and it had lost weight. And he comes inside and he's like, that's really weird. That lamb lost weight. And I'm like, oh, that's not weird. You check her udder. And he goes back, he comes back like 10 minutes later and he's like, oh my God, she has mastitis. Like it was a horrible, horrible raging case of mastitis. Like she was not putting out any milk. I mean, we're lucky that we weighed that lamb when we did because they can't go very long, you know, getting, I'm sure I got some colostrum. Otherwise it would have been dead already from dehydration and stuff. But like, that is something. And I, and I think this comes from the fact that like, you know, this reminds me of what happened in the cheese making world. And that is, you know, that because nobody was making cheese at home anymore in the 20th century. And so they had to go and get commercial recipes and downsize them for home cheesemakers. And I think that, you know, we really have lost the small scale farmer. So we are looking to extension agents and stuff, which are really geared towards people with, you know, like a couple hundred sheep or goats who are doing this as a business. And if you have a couple hundred sheep or goats, no, you can't go out there and weigh every baby every day. You are just going to go out there one day and find a kid that's dead. And then they show you how to do a necropsy so you can see, oh, yeah, it died from starvation because this is this, these are the signs. You know, if you're only having, like in our case, we have somewhere between 10 and 20 does a year that kid, it's not such a big deal to weigh all those kids. And they're not all doing it on the same day. You know, they're spread out. And we we weigh every kid every day for the first two weeks. And then after that, if they are on target, if they once they have doubled their weight, which we like to see by two weeks, after that, then we just weigh them weekly to make sure they're still on track. And 95% of the time after that, they are. It's very rare for us to find a kid that has any trouble after the first two weeks because that's when they have the most massive weight gain. Like I said, they're doubling their weight in those two weeks. And that's when the doe has to really ramp up her production, you know? So that's why you may see quads very, very common for a quad to seem like it's doing okay for a week, maybe two, and then to just you know, wind up laying in the straw, can't even stand because the dough just could not keep up with the increased demand from those growing kids. Which makes so much sense, right? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I couldn't even imagine having to feed one child, let alone three or four of them. So (laughs) yeah, exactly. And it's not always the dough, you know, a lot of times it's one of the kids. I mean, and we've all seen this, you know, 
if, if you've had baby goats, you've seen it. Like there's one that is like so pushy and he's usually, it's the biggest one at birth because he's got the bulk behind him and it's usually bucks, which is why I'm saying him. <laughs> he's got the bulk behind him to do this. You know, I, before we were weighing, I will never forget the time that like this one doe had quads and I'm like, I don't like leaving four kids, especially because one was really small. I was like, I really don't like leaving four kids with the dough, especially when one is this small, but that little dough has got so much spunk. Like she is just so much vigor and everything, you know? And like, I really think she's got the personality to, you know, get enough to make sure she's getting enough milk. And I know this dough can do it because she's like one of my top milkers. You know, we weigh all of the milkings every day. So we know how much milk they can produce. And then I got so lucky that I had another doe kidding at 3 a.m. the next day. And I go out there at three o'clock in the morning and I am with this other doe. And I see that that little quad is like laying at the opposite end of the pen from where the heat lamp is, flat on her side, four legs sticking out, weakly crying. And it was just like deja vu, like, you didn't leave that little kid with her mother. You should have known better. And <laughs> and I'm in the middle of kid. And we had an intern here at the time. And this was like already her third or fourth birth. And I'm like, okay, if one of them comes out before I get back, you know what to do. If it doesn't come out, don't worry about it. I'll take care of you. Know, like if there's a problem, I'll take care of it when, it, when I get back. But I said, I got to run this kid in the house. Like, because when they are, this was freezing weather. So she had hypothermia. Because when they're that weak, like they have hypothermia when it's freezing out. And so I come running her in the house. It's three o'clock in the morning. I stick this baby goat in bed with my husband. And I'm like, you have one job right now. Just get this kid warmed up. Like, I, you know, Agnes is in labor. I will be back when she's done. And a couple hours later, I come back and that baby goat was like, you know, so happy and had so much more energy just from getting warmed up, just from being tucked into bed under a blanket with my husband. And then I was able to give her a bottle of, you know, goat milk and it all turned out beautifully in the end. <laughs> For the engineer who doesn't like animals being <laughs> in bed with a goat. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> three oh, I love it. At three o'clock in the morning. On top of that, your husband sounds very similar to my husband, and that <laughs> sounds like his worst nightmare. So, <laughs> well, I, I am so grateful for this conversation and everything that you've shared with us today, Deborah. You are an expert and you are a wealth of knowledge. So I just want to drive that home with you. If there was ever any doubt left over in your mind about this, my last question for you today is what is the most rewarding part for you of being a homesteader? Just knowing where my food comes from and not being worried about this additive, you know, like I'm not looking at a label going, Ooh, I wonder what that is. I wonder if it's a carcinogen or an endocrine disruptor or something like that. You know, am I going to get cancer in 20 years because I'm eating too much of this chemical? We don't have that. And that was one of the things that was also super important to me because cancer does not just run in my husband's family. It gallops at full speed, like his family. And he's already had melanoma. He's had more other 
skin cancers. He's had it all. He's had melanoma, dysplastic nevi, squamous cell, and there's two others. There's like five different kinds of skin cancer he's had. You know, I say he's like Swiss cheese. And so he's had so many holes cut in him. And so it's just really important to me that we do everything we can to keep ourselves healthy so that we can, you know, if we do get something like that, that we'll be 80 when we get it, not, you know, in our 50s or 60s. Yeah, for sure. Well, and living the best life you possibly can with the resources that you have, right? And, you know, you have this knowledge and you know what you're doing and what you're growing and what you're putting in your body and feeding to your family and your community. So those are all wonderful things. So for the listeners who would like to connect with you after the show or find out more information about your books and your blog and your courses and all of the things, give us the shtick. Where can we find you online? You can find me everywhere at Thrifty Homesteader. So thriftyhomesteader.com. I'm on Instagram, Facebook, and Pinterest at Thrifty Homesteader. My podcast, For the Love of Goats, is on all the podcast players. And I have 550 articles on my blog (laughs) about all kinds of stuff. 175 are about goats, but that still leaves, what, 300 and something uh, about all the other things. Chickens, sheep, pigs. Yeah. Yeah. That's amazing. Well, I will be sure to leave those links in the show notes so the listeners can find you and connect with you. Sounds good. And my books are available at all of the bookstores. So... Perfect. That is great. Thank you so much for being on the Rural Woman podcast today. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. This has been so much fun. Thanks for listening to the Rural Woman podcast. A special thanks to our Patreon executive producer, Sarah Reedner of Happiness by the Acre, and to my editor, Max Hofer. For show notes, head on over to wildrosefarmer.com. You can connect with me on social media using the handle at Wild Rose Farmer on all platforms. If you love the show, make sure you're subscribed wherever you listen to podcasts, plus share it with a friend. We'll see you next time. Caitlin Dubin, the host of the Rural Woman podcast, and Bev Ross, host of the Joy Farmer podcast, have teamed up to create Positively Farming Media. Positively Farming Media is a podcast hub that connects and cultivates growth-oriented farm and food storytellers. We host a mastermind mentoring group that fosters connection and collaboration between podcasters so you no longer have to produce your show within a silo. Each month in our member-only online community, new learning modules are released that are designed to increase your show's quality, listenership, and advertising opportunities. When you join today, you'll have access to the current month's modules and our previously released modules so you can start growing your show right away. Learn more and start building connections to fellow podcasters in the food and agriculture space at PositivelyFarmingMedia.com.